TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm here. And I'm back. And I'm super, super happy you're better <laughs> and you're back and to have you. And it's actually right at the right time. It's a special occasion. This week, so many of our listeners in Asia and frankly, listeners everywhere will celebrate Lunar New Year. Yes. So it's an extra special week. Oh, I think it's great to celebrate Lunar New Year. Do you have a special Lunar New Year memory? I think the lion dances in China. Yeah. When I first saw that, I was just completely mesmerized. And even these days, I always go to Chinatown and we stand there and we watch the lion dance. That's really special. Yeah. And then just all the food. There's just nothing really much better than a holiday that centers on food. <laughs> this year is the year of the rabbit. And the rabbit is often associated with hope and prosperity. And it just seems exactly the right message, the right kind of thing that we need at this particular time. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was raised in Hong Kong a little bit and I have exactly a similar memory of oh. those dances. And it's just kind of seared in my brain. So it is a wonderful time of year. Yeah. And how should we celebrate yeah. it, Felix? Well, I thought we'd celebrate by talking about China. Yeah. I would like to talk about electric vehicles and a major maker of electric vehicles in China, this company called BYD. Yeah. It's interesting in the context of China, but interesting in the context of EVs and the global market. Yes. What did you bring? Well, so it's an interesting connection, which is part of that story, I think, has got to do with the way the government has been involved in the EV market. I kind of wanted to talk more generally about where we are in the experiment that China has been running with how oh. to run capital allocation in an economy. Yeah. And what new research says about that and what you make of it all. Yeah, that is super interesting because... Our focus has been so much on COVID and COVID policy that we sometimes forget all the other big things that are <laughs> happening. For example, how does the government allocate capital, which ends up being so important for so many things, both inside China, but also China's relationship with the West. I think you're exactly right. I'm delighted to be digging into something different. Wonderful. Let's do it. Okay, Felix, so all things EV and BYD and whatever other acronyms you can come up with in China. <laughs> it's an acronym-heavy industry, like so many other industries <laughs> yeah. as well. But what's really remarkable to me is here in the United States and in Europe, we often have the sense we're at the beginning of a transition towards electrification of everything. All of a sudden, it seems there's so much interest in electric vehicles. 
almost all the major manufacturers have announced these really grand plans to switch from combustion engine vehicles to electric cars. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations around what will the future look like. Right. And then right. <laughs> somehow, interestingly, there's a place on the planet where the future in some sense has already taken place. It's already happened, the big transition. And that place is, of course, the electric vehicle market in China. Yeah. About 25% of cars sold now in China are electric vehicles. And in the Chinese context, they come both fully electric vehicles, but also plug-in hybrids right. in that category. So that's about five times as many as in the United States. And the market is just growing super rapidly. Yeah. Entry as almost always in China seems completely out of control. I don't know yeah. if anyone knows actually how many companies, but I read some estimate there are more than 300 companies that are now producing electric vehicles, yeah. which of course in part reflects that it's not quite as difficult to build an electric vehicle as it is to build a traditional car. And then the company that I would love to talk about with you is this company BYD. So the name interestingly stands for Build Your Dreams, and in some sense they really have. It started in 1995 as a company that was focused on building batteries. They got a little bit of press, a little bit of notoriety after Warren Buffett invested exactly. in 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. And they are now the premier producer of electric vehicles in China. They produce more vehicles even than Tesla does. And this is in a market that is actually really big. I mean, China sells more electric vehicles than the rest of the world altogether. Mm -hmm. And the news about BYD, interestingly, is a little mixed. On the one hand, you can look at the production economics, and they look pretty reasonable. They're making money off of every car that they produce. It's not a huge amount. It's about 10,000 RMB or so, but they're profitable and they're growing very quickly. They're introducing new models. And then at the same time, their stock fell by 30% this last year. And Berkshire Hathaway actually maybe cost in part the plunge, maybe foresaw the plunge, who knows exactly, they started selling a significant fraction of the stake that they had in the company. So I'm just super curious to know, what do you make of it? Is it a success story? Is it much trickier maybe than many people realize? Where do you come out? Yeah, it's such a great topic, Felix. It's just worth acknowledging that the success story without debate, is the growth of the EV market in China. Yeah. It is just a stunning story. So the rate of penetration, the rate of consumer acceptance, the diversity of models. And by the way, a huge chunk of this market is at very low price points. Yeah. And so there is just remarkable growth. And to see that transition happen so fast and with a huge amount of government help in many, many ways. Yes. Although now it appears that it's gotten to the point where a lot of the things that we rely on the West to make it attractive to become an electric customer, they don't longer need. Mm -hmm. So that's also really exciting about what's happened that's there. That's really exciting, yeah. So I think that whole backdrop is fascinating and to think about what China did. BYD in particular is completely fascinating for a couple of reasons. The first is, is the vertical integration. So they are integrated in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. They have been doing batteries for a long time. They've been doing chips for a long time. And so they 
in part have been able to succeed in the last 24 months in particular, I think because vertical integration has really helped them. And I think that is a really interesting part of their strategy. The second part that is fascinating to me is they are now moving up price points. So they play in all kinds of markets, but they're coming up to affordable luxury and luxury. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they are really starting to penetrate into where Tesla is, and they're coming to penetrate into where the rest of the world is, in particular where the U.S. and Europe is. And they are now getting into Europe with some significant amounts of success. So it's a really interesting story about vertical integration. It's a really interesting story about building a global brand. But the question you asked is, yeah, that all sounds great in here, but why is its stock getting crushed and why did Berkshire Hathaway sell? (laughs) Yes, you wonder, right? (laughs) And I think the answer to that has got to be, I feel like this EV market is becoming a place where you want to be a buyer of the product and not a buyer of the stock. It's getting very seriously competitive. Players who used to have markets all to themselves no longer will have that be available to them. And it is going to be great for the world. We're going to have EVs in lots and lots of places. Whether the people who provide capital to those industries do well is a totally separable Mm -hmm, question mm -hmm, in my mind. mm -hmm. So I guess that's the way I make sense of it. It can be an amazing company doing amazing stuff, but it doesn't mean that the people who are the owners are going to necessarily reap all the rewards of it just because how competitive it's getting. Yeah, that's a fabulous way of thinking about it. And in a way... It's also a good way to forecast the future of the electric car market more generally. So the moment you have a product that is now much simpler to manufacture, where all of a sudden we go from having one dominant distribution model Mm -hmm. to now having many different distribution models. So I'm thinking about what is happening in Europe right now, where you have a Chinese electric car maker that essentially mimics Tesla and that it sets up its own distribution network, NIO. And then you have BYD that uses a very old-fashioned strategy. They go through the importers. And then you have another Chinese car company like Xiaopeng that now works directly with the dealers or with groups of dealers. And so even on the distribution side, things fracture in an interesting way. And You see Tesla cut prices and BYD raise prices at one and the same time. You sort of see this shift in competitiveness in a really nice way. Yeah. And the price cutting, Felix, just to put some numbers on it, is not small. It's 10 (laughs) or 20 percent. And it's happening a week after they said they wouldn't. Uh, Well, it's Tesla, right? So, Right. Well, (laughs) but he's now explicitly signaled they need volumes. And so... They are going to be doing aggressive price reductions, both in the U.S. and in China and in Europe. And so that changes that market completely. For a long time, Felix, I think Tesla was able to extract the rents of scarcity because they were just a dominant sole player. And similarly in China, Mm -hmm. there are these players who were able to just really extract a lot of value because they were on the top end of that market and they were pretty much alone. Certainly BYD, in a way, was like that, along with SAIC, perhaps. But now... It's no longer yeah, going to be true. It's no longer Not true. just do you have Tesla coming up against BYD. As BYD moves up, Tesla comes down in terms of price points. Yeah. But then you're going to have in all these other markets, BMW and GM and Ford and Audi and everybody crashing in at the same time, which to me is, again, great for consumers. I'm not sure it's going to be a great story for the stocks. Yeah. And it's coupled with two other changes that you alluded to. 
in the early days, of course, this was all about subsidies. Right. And China, starting in 2010, was very generous and then took back a part of the support. They now phased out the central government's subsidies completely, although there are important benefits at the local level still if you drive an electric vehicle. Right. As a result of efforts of trying to combat pollution in China, there are many cities where you can't drive every day. Depending on your license plate, you can drive only one or the other day. Electric vehicles are typically exempted from these kinds of restrictions. There are cities, which I find actually quite amazing, where you can park for free for two hours if you have yeah. an electric vehicle. So there's still a little bit of support less, but still... Generally speaking, it's true that you now listen to Chinese consumers and you listen to how they're making these choices and why they're making the choice of going electric. Subsidies are not front and center. State support has gone away. Now they're choosing between, oh, which car has the nicer interior and who has the flashier accessories to the car. And, and so it really feels like mm. a much more mature market to begin with. And that... I think comes along with much less brand loyalty than we generally see in the market for cars. I hmm. think that's the other really big change yeah. that ties into financial market pressures eventually. In the US, we only see it in surveys. So when we ask people at the moment, when you think about getting an electric car and you're driving, I don't know, Ford today, are you thinking about Ford first and foremost? And people say, yeah, maybe a little less. But in China, it's actually in full bloom. It's almost as if you bought a new product category and you sort of invented a new for yourself. Yeah. You're discovering brands that didn't matter because they didn't play That's interesting. or weren't the traditional brands. And so that, of course, from a competitive point of view, is not fabulous news for the car manufacturers. But it feeds into the question I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about, Felix, which is in this era of declining brand loyalty, as you put it, you have these really remarkable Chinese players and the question for me is, can they become successful global brands and businesses? They're dominating and flexing in China <laughs> like crazy. Yes. But tell me about like Europe and tell me about the US. Can you imagine a world in 10 years where BYD is a top three brand? Yeah. Now, in many ways, you might say right now, they should be well positioned to do that because of their integration, because of their history, because of their capacity. On the other hand, I think you would agree with this, it's been striking how hard it has been for companies from China and India to create global brands and global businesses. Will all this strength translate into real export global success or not? It's a great question for exactly the reason that you point out. Think of so many of the dominant companies in China. Think of Alibaba, think of Tencent, and then their amazing domestic success somehow just does not really translate into global success, even in domains where you think, oh my God, they should be in games, in e-commerce, they should be right. powerhouses, right. and by and large, they're not. So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say it's different for cars for two reasons. One is Chinese EV makers are really just ahead of the curve. Yeah. They are now having volumes that most other companies elsewhere can only dream of. And 
to the extent that economies of scale are just so important in car manufacturing. I think that is one reason why they have maybe a two, maybe a three-year window in which they can really be successful and build up distribution networks globally. The second reason has a little to do with why I'm most optimistic, perhaps, about a company like BYD. If you look at other Chinese attempts to enter global markets, what has almost never worked for them is go in at the very high end. Yes. So if you look at an EV maker like Neo out of China, and they're doing exactly that in Europe. So their models start at 70,000, 80,000 euros, and then... They have an interesting business model where you can either own or rent the battery. Mm-hmm. And if you also want to own the battery, the car is competing now with BMWs and with Mercedes. And I think in that context, a Chinese brand versus BMW is just hard. That's really tough. BYD, I think, has done two really interesting things. They enter with at least one model that is fairly reasonably priced, sort of in the mid 40,000 euros or so. And I think that is so smart because that is much more consistent with having a Chinese brand that people are not familiar with. And so I think the better price point coupled with a strategy that is built around the notion, this is really a new market and the new market brings new brands and you're willing to explore in ways that maybe otherwise you wouldn't be willing to explore. That actually makes me super comfortable. Yeah. What is your sense? I think I agree with everything you said. And I'm particularly intrigued about the idea of a new category. I totally agree with the idea that they've had this head start, which is considerable and they have incredible strengths. And the idea that brand loyalty shifts in this new category, you think about the product in a new way, I think is super interesting. And of course, we've had Japanese and Korean companies succeed on a global stage mm-hmm. in the automobile industry. Yeah, I think what it raises, though, Felix, is this is where I think politics and business intersect. And will people's <laughs> willingness to engage with a Chinese brand somehow deter them because of what they perceive of as some larger set of events. Yes. I think the only thing that can really screw this up is, first off, it is really hard to scale and continuing to scale, really just to hard. be clear. Yeah. They have a good reason to succeed. They have a right to succeed, but it's not like it's easy. There's a version of the world where the EV market ends up being effectively geographically mm-hmm, separated. Mm-hmm. So Americans yeah. buy Teslas and GMs, Europeans buy BMWs and Audis, and Chinese by BYD, Geely, and everyone else. That could be the way this world shakes out just as easily as BYDB being a dominant player in the US and Europe. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's two interesting things to me. One is that BYD has already made an announcement that they will build two factories somewhere in Europe. And so Part of the political concern is, of course, always around employment. And I'm absolutely sure whether we recognize Neo as being Chinese or not, the lobbyist for Volkswagen will make sure that everybody in Brussels <laughs> understands that this is a Chinese company. The moment you have local production, the way, say, you have it now, all of these announcements of Korean battery manufacturers to build up production capacity in the U.S., the moment you have that, I think it's a much thornier political problem because so much of the political considerations have to do with employment. And then the second point that I find so interesting is rare earth minerals, which play a 
big role in the battery production. But what is totally fascinating is even for rare earth that is found somewhere else, processing of these materials is totally dominated by China. So building a supply chain that completely cuts out China, I think is impossible at this point in time, unless you're building enormous rare earth mineral processing capabilities elsewhere, which I don't really know if there's a lot of capital to doing this. So maybe if you have to live with sort of a global supply chain anyway, maybe that in some sense makes it a little easier to say now, okay, we're letting some of these brands play also in in a way that is visible to consumers. I'm glad you raised this basic materials question, which is going to be so central to the future of the batteries and the EVs and China's not virtual monopoly on it. Yeah. It could work the way you said, or it could just be China plays hardball and says access to our minerals is a trade for access to your markets. Yeah. It can go that way. Yeah. So it can happen in a very explicit way. I hadn't even thought about that, but that sounds right. A massive point of leverage, and yeah. it's going to get used at some point. And so that could be the other way this shakes out. But it might be that maybe their most promising market at some point in time will be the battery market, where they become one of the really important suppliers to lots and lots of EV makers around the world. They seem just very well positioned, given just this massive uncertainty that we don't quite know what the market will look like going forward. The one other thing I really want to talk to you about, Felix, is in these markets, BYD is moving up price points. So they're trying to get into the affordable luxury and luxury. Yes. Tesla is coming down in price points. <laughs> they're trying to come down and they're reducing prices. I know this is a very generic question, but in markets like this, do you have an instinct about which is harder to do? Is it harder to kind of move up the ladder in terms of product quality and differentiation into these markets? Or is it harder to like maintain your elite status and then yet come down in price points? So... To me, Tesla versus BYD in China is this struggle. Yeah. Do you have a sense of which of those kind of journeys is harder to do? I think the journey towards, say, a true luxury brand is much harder, in particular yeah. if you don't have a history of doing this. So BYD now has introduced this brand, Young Wang, which if you look at prices now, we're talking $150,000 cars. And so that is like a real stretch. Exactly. What you're really building is maybe not quite a market that will contribute in a significant way. What you're really building is some sort of a halo effect for everything else that you're doing. I agree. There's interesting technology in Yangwang models that I think eventually can go into other BYD cars. Again, you're getting scale and economies of scale are essentially the name of the game in car production. But to me, Yang Wang is as much symbolic as it is about really, oh my God, this is going to be an amazing market and you'll be successful against Porsche and Mercedes and everyone else. The ultra luxury market in China, just as a rule, is still dominated by Western brands. For Tesla, I think one way to look at their price cuts is to say, this is a stimulated by a sense that you want to get greater volume. They have revamped their factory. They have greater output right now. And it's basically capturing more of that middle market mm -hmm. where the sweet spot is. But then also 
Some of their cars are just old. This is the first thing. Tesla that totally. they introduced in China is now six years old. And this is in a market where every day there's like five new models out there. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's mostly a sign of weakness or is it sort of strategic outreach to a segment that you didn't want to serve to begin with? I don't know, but I think you put your finger on something that people don't talk about enough, which is the design is a little bit old now. Yeah. And some of the new designs don't look that great. And it's almost like this aesthetic thing that Tesla used to do so well, it's gotten old and they haven't refreshed. And yeah. I wonder about that a lot. I will just say that this reach for the high end for BYD, I actually think is symbolic, as you said. I think that's got to be right. But I think it's really important because the margins at the low end are terrible. <laughs> yes. For BYD to succeed, they need the margins of those affordable luxury, luxury vehicles. Yeah. And then you need the credibility. So I agree that it's symbolic, but I got to tell you, if they pull that off and it's a credible luxury car with real power, man, that would give me even more confidence that they could build something long run. Yeah. Okay, but based on our previous conversations, Felix, I know the critical question is going to be, Will you be able to contact a dealer and get a car? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Support for the show comes from Economist Education. On After Hours, we've discussed how powerful and impactful it can be to use data to share complex stories. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization that I highly recommend. It's super fascinating stuff. And you can discover how to find, collect, and analyze data, harness it to craft a compelling message or narrative. These courses last about two to six weeks. They are online programs designed to empower you. Economist education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. You can get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to our exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash after hours, and enter my promo code after hours at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash after hours and use promo code after hours at registration. If there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash. After Hours, to get 15% off your first order when you use After Hours at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash afterhours and use the code afterhours at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. So me here, capital allocation by the Chinese government. What are you thinking? Yeah, well, as you know, Felix, I'm always up for talking about capital allocation. <laughs> we just finished talking about EVs. And in many ways, 
the position of BYD and the position of the EV market in China is a testament to the government interventions yeah, of various kinds it's right, yeah. that China has undertaken in the last 15 years. Like you just can't look around that. And they are going to reap the rewards of that now. And they have by being so much ahead of the rest of the world. On the other hand, we are now at a stage where we can begin to assess China's efforts at capital allocation more generally. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what you make of what they have been doing. So, for example, the dominance of the state as an owner of different kinds of enterprise. Yeah. It's the dominance of the state as a lender to various kinds of enterprise. Even in spaces like venture capital and private equity, we see the state as being a dominant player inside China. Globally, obviously, China is allocating capital around the world in very strategic ways. And so there are these kinds of stories of remarkable success and maybe more writ large, the remarkable success at poverty alleviation had to do with remarkably good capital allocation <laughs> by the state. Yes. At the same time, we're at a juncture today where the challenge feels different, the regime's approach to it feels different, and I'm curious what you make of China's more recent efforts at trying to allocate capital at this stage of development as opposed mm -hmm. to what the story was 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of those efforts? And not to be reductionist, do you think they're kind of positive or is it a more complicated picture? What's so fascinating about the question that you ask is that there are these almost completely different narratives out there. One is, as you say, the Chinese government as this super smart entity that essentially is out to conquer the world or at least conquer important industries in the world. And they are much more farsighted than capital markets that look at the next quarterly earnings. Right. And they just invest in the future of their economy. And maybe the story that is a little closer to my heart is when I talk to private companies in China, one of the things that you always hear is the many ways in which they are disadvantaged when it comes to access to capital. And since my general bias is to think some of the most amazing companies in China tend to be private companies, that is not a story that is really consistent. And so luckily, we now have recent research that looked at this question very carefully. Mm -hmm. Where does capital actually flow in China? Who gets it? Who doesn't get it? And the story, I think, is really sobering. So the mismanagement of the COVID situation probably did some damage to the party's reputation and to the reputation of the Chinese government. But the facts on the ground when you look at capital allocation are in some sense even more dramatic. So where does capital flow? Capital flows first and foremost to firms that are less productive than the average firm in that industry to begin with. And then you might say, okay, so maybe this is sort of lifting all boats and creating more competition, which is something that the Chinese government actually does really well. It's even true for Alibaba. When they want to punish a firm. What they end up doing is they just make your market more competitive than it used to be. And so you might think, okay, so capital flows to the companies that are not the stars. And maybe if that improves their productivity, then you have a more competitive situation, which tends to be better for the economy as a whole. But that's not actually what the data show. The data show that once you receive government subsidies, your productivity falls relative to everyone else. Yeah. And 
The only silver lining, if you will, is that these capital flows, not completely surprisingly, go towards firms that employ a lot of people. Right. And they increase employment. So it does have that effect. And then they increase employment as a result. Yeah. Yeah. But it's striking to me how it's so different from this view of the government as this all-knowing, all-seeing entity that steers the economy in a way that markets could never, ever do. Some of that research indicates that firms themselves are very ambivalent about getting capital. So it's not just that these effects are maybe not great in terms of the capital allocation, but firms themselves are wary of getting capital from the state. Certainly the higher quality firms appear to view it as a mixed blessing. Yeah, At best, maybe a mixed blessing, right? Which is, yes, it's capital, but their preferences are not towards raising capital from those folks. But that only cements your point that the capital is not exactly going towards its highest uses. And it indicates the managerial ambivalence about raising money from the state. I think that's what we get wrong about thinking about capital allocation by the state in China. At least economists talk about it as a helping hand or a grabbing hand. Mm -hmm. The helping hand is the view that you articulated a little bit, which is, hey, it's great. It's helping us do things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And the grabbing hand... It's kind of got this lineage almost from Soviet times of like the state (laughs) as somebody who just takes away stuff from you. But the reality to me is it feels like capital allocation in China is not about helping or grabbing. It's about controlling. It's the controlling hand. We talk about the helping or the grabbing, but that's not really what's going on. What's going on is using capital as a lever of control. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm, ultimately what mm -hmm. matters. Does that sound right to you? I think that sounds exactly right. And I think people's intuition, of course, starts from a point that sounds correct. In particular, at this point in time, the government is everywhere. It's unthinkable that you can do business in China in any way that if you're a significant firm, your government relations are going to be significant. What I find so interesting about the study that you described me here is that even among these firms that understand they're living in an economy where the government is really important, their hesitation to take government capital still says Even under those circumstances, the benefits of being closely aligned with the government are less than the cost of being afraid that the government might intervene or might set the strategic direction of the firm in a way that is inconsistent with the best opportunities of the company. And I just wish we had a much better understanding of this in the West because Our negative response, in particular to Chinese success, is always that we look at the successful firms. We look at Huawei, we look at TikTok, we look at anyone who's ever been successful in China, and we think, oh my God, that's just a product of the state. Right, 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 right. the reverse is true. It's not a product of the state. It's a product that somehow got away from the state and they built a really amazing company. And for them, relations with the government are asked complicated and fraught. Oh, yeah. The survey, I think, that you described makes a really good point. It's like, if I could choose the world to live in, I would choose a world in which the government doesn't breathe down my neck quite as much as they do today. Yeah, it's fascinating that you frame it that way, because in a way, we have it exactly wrong. We think that companies are succeeding because of the role of the state. There's a view of the world which is they're succeeding in spite 
of yes. the role of the state. Yeah. And also it makes me think that we're trapped in a narrative from 20 years ago, which is a way of saying the success of China over the last 20 years had to do with remarkable infrastructure and remarkable capital allocation and making capital very cheap for a lot of industries over the last 30 years. But that is not the problem in my mind that China faces today, which is mm -hmm. the thing that I think about now is, yeah, okay, that was a wonderful time and era 30 years ago to allocate capital in this way, mm -hmm. a quasi-national missionary. But today the problem is different and the problem of capital allocation is so much more associated with information and incentives. The, the classic capital allocation problem in global economies. And then the benefits of the state begin to really wither if what really matters is thinking about incentives and thinking about information and thinking about who has it and thinking about who should get it and thinking about who has the high-powered incentives to get things done. Mm -hmm. That's precisely where you don't want the state. And so I think part of what you're observing with these survey results, Felix, is we're trapped in this idea of the state as being this helper from 30 years ago but yeah. the reality of what China <laughs> needs today is totally different. More broadly, it reminds me, there's so many stories about China that when you look at the data, sometimes pan out and sometimes don't pan out. So I'm curious, actually, what you think. Decoupling is another one of these stories. We're, we're seeing the emergence, essentially, of two very different worlds. Yeah. One world is going to be the Western world and the U.S. will have leadership there. And then China will be its own world and will have its own satellite economies and satellite countries. And essentially, we're going through a process of decoupling. Do you buy this? One has to distinguish between what one hopes for and what <laughs> thinks will happen. Yes, okay. <laughs> Because I think it's important to at least acknowledge that, even if you're not able to do it completely. I think the loss for global welfare is just enormous from that kind of pattern for all yeah. kinds of reasons because yeah. we lose so many gains from trade we lose so much interchange we lose so much exchange of ideas it's just honestly tragic in many many ways so i hope it doesn't i think i have resisted that idea for a long time because i've thought to myself people will come to understand the benefits of globalization people will come to understand the benefits mm -hmm, of integration mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we really should understand those things more deeply i don't know felix i'm more concerned about the way these things get played out in the narrative that we all live in and the degree to which it is framed in antagonistic ways, yeah. both in China and in the West. At both ends. And both ends. And so the question, what I think is going to happen is a function of these political leaders, the degree to which they use antagonism to further their own needs. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us can underestimate their appetite to do that yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it is like a very powerful thing. <laughs> yes. We appear to be approaching that more and more. Now, the question is, in five years, will it still be true? I don't know. I hope not. Yeah. What do you make of it, Felix? What makes me most uncertain is that The narrative, I think, is exactly what you describe. And the incentives, I think, was spot on. That's exactly in China and in the West. These are the interests of governments and government players on both ends. So far, at least, I see just surprisingly little in the data. And what I'm not sure about is it takes a little while and over time it'll change. Or is it that actually... 
politics sometimes lives in an alternate world that doesn't have all that much to do with what is actually happening on the ground. Totally. So for instance, take Chinese exports. This idea that we're diversifying away from China, they're no longer the workshop of the world. In early 2002, Q1 in 2002, exports out of China hit an all-time high, much higher than ever before. And there was an interesting new quality to the exports also in that it came at the expense, not of other countries that can produce sort of lower value chain kinds of activities. It came at the expense of Germany and it came a little less, but it came in part at the expense of the United States, yeah. indicating that China is now moving up the value chain. If you look at their current account surplus, it's now stands at $150 billion. It's an all-time high. So the data themselves would suggest that actually this integration of the Chinese economy with the rest of the world is so far, at least, we don't really see that much. Look, I think on your first point, there is a big part of me that feels like all this decoupling is posturing and cheap talk. Yeah. And that's what I've believed for a long time, which is it's all cheap talk. And it's sort of good. No? Exactly. So there's political rhetoric that operates at one level and there's economic reality at a different level and people can say what they want, but then the economics still drive things. Basically, yes. that's one yeah. way to understand the that's world. Right. That's what I felt for a long time. I think the last 12 months have made me feel differently uh -huh. because maybe two things. You know, One is there is a sense in which you will hear people talk about Chinese companies as being uninvestable. That is now a trope. Mm -hmm. I was in India recently, and again, you never know if this is real, but you have large corporations talking about relocating supply chains to India. Now, is that cheap talk? Maybe because they need something to offset China risk. Yeah, And I think that is true, Felix. I think actually people feel a sense of exposure to China that they didn't feel three years ago. Yeah, And that is real, and that's making them rethink supply chains. I think that's got to be right. Now, when it will show up in the data, I don't know. Could it end up being, frankly, relatively small and like relatively trivial yeah. relative to what China still means to them? Yeah, it could be. Mm -hmm. Up until two mm -hmm. years ago, I thought it was all cheap talk. Yeah. In this last year, there's a sense people view it as exposure in a way that they've never viewed it before. I don't know. Does that resonate? So, yes and no. So, if I can maybe qualify it a little bit, I think what you already see in the data is that added capacity now goes to more places than China. Right. I think what we don't see, at least at the moment, is any sort of reduction in capacity that is installed in China. And some companies that invest right now in China, you will not get a press release. They will not talk about the fact that they're actually investing in China for all the reasons that we just talked about. So right. the most interesting part to me is, are we thinking about installed capacity? In which case, China is so important for the rest of the world economy that its importance will last for many, many years, for decades possibly. Or are we really talking about added capacity that now goes somewhere else. And I think that's really great news for Indonesia. That's great news for the Philippines. That's great news for Thailand. Great news for Mexico in the case of the US. And that, of course, is a real force as well. And it's probably investments that would have gone to China, but don't go now. But I think, Felix, the answer to that question has got to be, we should be paying attention to the marginal capacity and the added capacity because that investment drives so much growth. And in China's case, to your point, 
they rely on it because of their reliance on the exports piece. Yeah. I take your point that install <laughs> capacity is huge, but the rate of change is what matters, I think, in that setting. Yes. And that is really tough news. With maybe the little wrinkle around what happens with retained earnings. If the sector is so big in China now that essentially retained earnings become one of the main sources of finance. Sure, that's a good point. I'm so glad we decided to do these China topics because in a way it's never really about China. I mean, it is about China, but it's really about the world because these topics matter for everybody. And we got a great moment. Happy Chinese New Year. Happy Chinese New Year. Okay, so now we have another occasion to celebrate New Year. Felix, what are your recommendations? (laughs) So my recommendation is a mini-series called The English. This sounds like right up my alley. Well, the title is a little misleading in that sense. It's a Western. (laughs) And (laughs) frankly, I cannot even remember when I last watched a Western. It must have been, I don't know, a very long time ago. But I think it's fabulous. It has... A great storyline. It's the story of an English person who goes to America when it was the Wild West that we used to talk about to revenge the death of her child. Huh. And she meets a Native American who served in the army. He's a member of the Pawnee Nation, and he's on his journey back from serving in the U.S. Army back to his homeland. And I think what helps with developing the story is the photography is spectacular. Yeah. Even if you have no sound, I think it will be totally watchable. And then the story gets really intense over time. And the two main characters both reflect many tensions that she brings from England. So class distinctions, older immigrants and more recent immigrants. And then his complicated relationship, his being Native American, but having served in the U.S. Army, but also conflict between different nations. I have to say there's two things that strike me about that. The first is so much of the streaming content, it's just so visually beautiful that you don't even really care about the plot. Yeah. They've taken the visual component to storytelling to just whole new levels. And the second much more lowbrow reaction is <laughs> on a long flight recently, I watched Yellowstone, oh, which is yes, also a Western that. series. And you know, it's kind of like a blue state, red state, weird thing in the United States. But I can tell you, I jumped right into season four on a plane because that's what one does. Yeah. It was really good. Okay. And as you said, visually beautiful and Kind of compelling. Interesting. What did you bring? So, you know, Felix, I try to be a man of moderation in all things. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I don't like extreme views of any kind, but I want to articulate an extreme view for you as a recommendation. Okay. So I have come back from a slightly longer trip of travel, and I have come to the conclusion that there is effectively almost never a reason to check a bag. Oh, I have become now an extremist on packing extremely light and living with the consequences. So for a long time, it was like anathema, for example, to do laundry abroad. Yeah. You were like, no, you don't do that. Of course you do. Yeah. And it's great. And it's like no problem. (laughs) And you can buy stuff when you travel if you need to get something. It is hard for me to understand the duration of a trip that requires one to check a bag. Now, This may be gendered. There's all kinds of issues associated with my recommendation. 
and especially shoes are very complicated. If you can figure out the shoe situation, yes, all agree. kinds of things are possible. But the recommendation I want to make to everyone is become ruthless about packing. Traveling light is majestic. Not just obviously given travel delays and hassles and losing bags, but the glory of walking out of an airport without ever going through baggage <laughs> claim is like yes, one of the more spectacular yeah. things in the world. Yeah. And just feeling so light on your feet, yeah. it changes your approach to travel because then you are light and you are no longer weighed down by luggage. So I am becoming an absolutist on this. And I recommend to all of us that we should become absolutist on this and avoid check-in luggage at all cost. Fabulous. I think it's marvelous. And then when you use these local services, for instance, I never have my laundry laundered in the hotel. Go out. Yes. Find a laundry shop. No, you're exactly right. It's another opportunity to interact with the world. Yeah. And we tend to think we have to bring everything from home when we travel. And the answer is yeah. no. No, you don't. Which might include buying shoes, which is also fabulous. Well, that's okay too. <laughs> it's all okay. Wonderful. There you go. This is it for today. Happy New Year, everyone, if you're celebrating Lunar New Year. Happy New Year. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. <laughs>